Welcome to Theology on the Go, a brief interview podcast from placefortruth.org. Place for Truth is a website of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, which we'd encourage you to visit. After the podcast, listen for details on how you can receive free resources from the Alliance. Mark Johnston is the minister of Bethel Presbyterian Church in Cardiff, Wales. He was previously senior pastor of Proclamation Presbyterian Church in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, and of Grove Chapel in Camberwell, London. He began his ministry as a church planter in Ireland. He serves on the board of the Banner of Truth Trust and has authored several books, including three titles in the Banner's Let's Study series, and then in addition, You and Your Small Corner and Our Creed. He's a contributor to Place for Truth. And so, Mark, thank you for joining us to talk about the subject of worship. Great to join you. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, you too. Now, let's start with just a very basic definition. What is worship? The worship is, is um, honoring God, giving glory to God as a, not only the great creator of everything that exists, but ultimately the one who alone can save and redeem the world that he has made, and in particular to, to rescue uh, sinful human beings and restore them to himself. And, and they, uh, we, were, we were made by God, and we were made for God, and the original design of, of our humanity was that we should uh, bring glory to God as, as his image bearers. Um, our sin and our rebellion has, uh, has severed us from that, and we, we dishonor God by our lives and by our deeds. Uh, but the whole purpose of redemption is to restore us to um, that relationship with God whereby we uh, give him the glory that he deserves. We do it not just in our lives, uh, which Romans 12, 1 and 2 speaks about, but uh, through the, the worship of our lips as well. So, in that definition, it's a fairly broad definition, does the Bible distinguish between worship in a general sense and the public worship of God's people gathered together? Yeah, it makes a distinction, um, but it doesn't, it doesn't do so in a way that separates one from the other. Uh, it's only as the, the, in the Old Testament, the, the sacred assembly was the gathering of God's people specifically to worship him and to honor him. And there are occasions, for example, at Mount Sinai where God tells his people to prepare themselves um, and to come in a way that is uh, consecrated to him um, in order that they might bring uh, their verbal, their spoken praise, their sung praise in a way that's pleasing to him. And the same principle carries through into the New Testament that uh, it's not merely going through the the rituals and the motions of worship, but it's doing so um, in a way that that um, is engaged with God as His redeemed people. Now that that brings up the whole question of authenticity in worship, which many people talk about today in in some of the the battles of our worship style. How do you see authenticity and the whole notion of being authentic playing into worship, and maybe particularly the worship uh, public worship? I think the, the desire for authenticity, which has been uh, very much at the heart of the emergent movement and some of the more contemporary expressions of worship, is a, uh, is a very valid concern uh, because uh, Christ himself speaks about the worshippers of his day as, as, as uh, following rules and regulations taught by men. Um, Isaiah talks about 
uh, people worshipping God uh, with their lips while their hearts are far from him. So that's not the kind of worship that God is pleased and he wants, he wants authentic worship. The question is how you actually create and uh, cultivate a worship that's, that's authentic. I think one of the problems with um, a lot of contemporary approaches is that it's too much focused on self and what's, what authenticates me or what validates me, what makes me feel good. Uh, whereas you know, Paul makes it clear that we're to find out what pleases God and bring that to him in worship and praise. Sometimes you use the illustration of uh, a guy who's started dating a girl and, and wants, to, uh, wants to impress her with a, a gift that he's going to bring. Um, but nine times out of ten, he chooses a gift that um, he would like to get rather than a gift that she would genuinely like to receive. So he'll turn up with a, a Swiss Army knife or a, a ladies' toolkit or something. And then sometimes that's the way that we bring worship to God. We bring what pleases us and not what pleases him. And I, I think there's two major dimensions to um, to cultivating that kind of, of worship that's that's genuine. Number one is to recognize that God has given a a context for public worship, uh, that out of the, the seven days of the week, he's, from the very beginning of creation, he set apart one day as being distinct um, and holy unto himself. Um, a day that even in a perfect world, before the fall, um, Adam and Eve were to, to draw near to God uh, in a way that wasn't the case under the, the normal routines of life, um, and to, to devote themselves to him, and they were to recognize and honor him for who he was. That carries through into the, the rest of Scripture, so it's, it's enshrined in the Ten Commandments. But the whole principle of Sabbath and the idea of there being one day in seven that's special for God um, uh, takes us from Genesis to Revelation. And I think it's very sad that so many contemporary churches um, of all traditions have just lost sight of the importance of the Sabbath principle significantly in relation to worship. And the other key areas is in the exchange between Jesus and the woman at the well in Samaria, uh, because as they discuss the, the merits and the demerits of Samaritan worship versus Jewish worship, um, and, and the woman at the well focuses very much on those external trappings of worship. Um, Jesus makes it clear that it's, it's not the external trappings that are the issue, but as he puts it, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And in using that language, it's, it's loaded language because, uh, and, and it's got a double edge to it, because uh, at, at one level, um, he's certainly saying that, that worship that's pleasing to God and acceptable to him uh, is worship that must be enabled and inspired by the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Um, it's not something that we can bring by ourselves with our own uh, resources and, and our own merits, but it must be um, enabled by the Spirit. And it must be guided by the word. Um, and it must be shaped by the word in every way. But but there's another sense in which those two words, spirit and truth, um, can be lowercase letters as opposed to capitalized. And Christ is speaking about, as, as Gerhardus Voss points out, it's, it's, it's not merely um, the, the, the role of the Holy Spirit and the word of God that's in view, but, but it's actually the... To be, to be able to worship God with our heads and our hearts engaged with him. Um, that we're not just saying the right things, but we're doing it with the right motivation and the right desire to see God exalted through our worship. So those things, I think, are, are, are 
too often neglected in worship debates these days, but are very much to the fore in, in the biblical presentation of what worship's all about. And it sounds like a part of the framework that you're operating from is one where you're saying we need to let the Bible dictate the terms of our worship, dictate what we do in worship, dictate how it is that we approach worship. Um, does that does that extend into every area of public worship? Would you say that we ought not to do things in public worship that the Bible does not expressly tell us to do in public worship? Yep. Um, I, I think there, there's I mean, historically it feeds into what's um, often be described as the regulative principle for worship. Um, it, it's a, a term that is getting some bad press in evangelical circles these days because it sounds uh, like a, a, some kind of... of uh, legal constraint that's been put upon our worship. Um, I, I think it's it's significant that uh, the, the way that that language is used historically, it, it is as a as a principle and not as a code. Um, sometimes it's been misused and, and reformed in evangelical churches as some kind of something prescriptive um, and, and heavy-handed. But it, it's actually meant to to liberate God's people um, into the kind of worship that they know will be pleasing and acceptable to God. Um, historically, it's, it's been expressed in, in different shapes and forms, uh, particularly around the time of the, the um, English Reformation and the, the Puritan era and the whole debate that took place then. Uh, Episcopalians tended to view it as whatever is not for, forbidden in Scripture is permitted. Um, so they took a very loose approach to how Scripture was to uh, to work itself out, and that, that allowed them to hang on to some of the vestiges of, of Roman Catholic worship and the forms that um, had prevailed then. Puritans and the, the Presbyterians took um, uh, uh, a, a narrower approach in one sense, but they said whatever is not expressly commanded in the Scripture is forbidden. Um, and their warrant for doing that came, I believe, in part from the Second Commandment, um, because they, as you look at the pattern that unfolds in the commandments in the, in the Old Testament, the first commandment deals with who we are to worship, uh, the God who makes himself known in Scripture. The second commandment deals with how we are to worship. And, and the language in which it is framed there and it ties in very much to the context in which it was given to the Israelites preparing to enter the land of Canaan, um, that they would be confronted with um, all manner of pagan worship and there would be a huge temptation for them to embrace the the, the patterns and the styles of pagan worship and just incorporate them into the worship of Yahweh. Uh, but God says explicitly, no, you're, you're not to worship um, in the, the way that the nations around you worship and, and spells out in, great, in greater detail in the, the chapters that follow. Um, and that's the beginning of, of where we find that principle working through Scripture that, um, that God has given clear direction of what worship would look like in Old Testament times before the coming of Christ. Um, and then in, in New Testament times, again, he, um, he opens up the, the core values that lay behind Old Testament worship and translates them into a, a New Testament context. Um, and uh, you, you have express warrant um, for, for those key elements of worship that uh, have, have marked uh, services through the, the whole history of the church, namely the, the centrality of the word, the place of prayer, the importance of the sacraments, um, the, the, the place for, for giving um, our tithes and offerings to God, that that's an expression of worship as well. Um, and the fact that um, 
again, following New Testament, both Old and New Testament patterns, that uh, that there's a, a clear place for worship, formal public worship being initiated through a, uh, a call to worship, where God, God, God's people realize they're coming not on their own whim, but at the invitation of God, and that they're dismissed from God's presence at the end of worship with the the words of blessing spoken over them, um, showing that, that God is the one who sends us on our way uh, with his hand of, of blessing resting upon us. Uh, so, yeah, I think that there's, um, uh, if, if we paid more attention to uh, the, those things that the scripture uh, clearly directs us to um, employ in worship, then we could have not only a greater confidence that our, our worship was pleasing and acceptable to God, but actually a you'll find greater benefit um, in the different components of worship. No, I like how you framed that, too, in terms of avoiding capitulation to the culture as well, and then also knowing how it is that God demands to be approached. Final question, what books or resources could you recommend to those trying to make sense of worship? Are there either old books, new books, ones that have been particularly helpful to you in trying to think through this whole issue? Yeah, I think one of the most significant books that, that um, I read was actually recommended years ago when I was at Westminster. Ed Clowney um, recommended as part of our practical theology course is Rob Rayburn's Worship in Spirit and in Truth. Um, it, it's, it was relatively new um, all those years ago, but it's become something of a classic. And it's interesting just to see the way that's fed through um, into um, into the whole discussion and debate about worship in, in more recent times. Uh, there's, you know, they, they, there, there's a plethora of books out there. The um, Festschrift that was put together uh, for for Jim Boyce uh, when he was still alive um, was just a, a fine collection um, of of essays and and, and uh, reflections on on the different aspects and elements of worship, and, and that, that's a, a fine compendium for someone to turn to. Mm-hmm. That's uh, Give Praise to God, Give edited by God. Derek Thomas. Is that That's the, one the very yeah. one, yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, thank you very much for your time. This has been helpful, I know, to our listeners and to me as well. And uh, so we really appreciate it, Mark. Thanks. Thanks for letting me join you. You've been listening to Theology on the Go, a podcast of placefortruth.org. Place for Truth wishes to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's Church. Theology on the Go is a production of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Our ministries include placefortruth.org, the Bible Study Hour with James Montgomery Boyce, and events such as the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology and various Reformation societies. To learn more about the Alliance, visit alliancenet.org or call 800-488-1888. Just for listening, we'd like to equip you with free resources. Visit placefortruth.org to find a link to those resources. And listen next time to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.